Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First off, I have to give a big thank you to Adam from Nitromania for joining the last episode of the podcast to break down St. Valentine's Day Massacre and the following night's episode of Raw. For those scoring at home, three of our last seven shows have been special mega episodes that have gone at least four and a half hours. And if that's too much for you, well, then too bad because it's going to keep happening. But the point is, Adam was a real trooper to dedicate so much time to come on the show, so thanks a lot to him, and be sure to subscribe to Nitromania on the feed for the Rundown Wrestling Podcast. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, February 22nd, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the UTC Arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee. In case you're wondering, UTC is actually short for the University of Tennessee Chattanooga, so we're actually on a college campus this week, folks. Be sure to keep a close eye on Jerry Lawler. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include six episodes of Wrestling Challenge in the early 90s, the 25th edition of Saturday Night's Main Event, where Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior teamed up to defeat Mr. Perfect and the Genius in the lead-up to WrestleMania VI. In Your House Final Four, where Bret Hart won his fourth WWF title in the main event. And two other episodes of Raw, including the May 25, 1998 episode, where Stone Cold Steve Austin had Vince McMahon arrested. And yes, William Rankin and I covered that very show in episode number 23 of this fine podcast. And speaking of William Rankin, WCW's Halloween Havoc 1991 also took place in this very same arena, and the New Blood Rising podcast literally just put up their episode on that very show a few weeks ago, so please be sure to listen to that. Three words, folks. Chamber of Horrors. That should say it all. One more note before we begin tonight. This episode of Raw is actually the 300th episode in the history of the show, which is a pretty fun milestone. However, I suppose it's possible that Vince didn't get that memo because it isn't mentioned at all on tonight's broadcast. Or maybe since it's the Attitude Era, we just won't mention it because, you know, tradition is for pussies. Fair enough. We open the show with highlights of last week's ladder match on Raw, where The Rock defeated Mankind to win the WWF title for the third time, with a huge assist from Paul White, who chokeslammed Mankind off the ladder. With Rock's victory, he will now go on to WrestleMania 15 to face the number one contender, Stone Cold Steve Austin. From there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include Val Venus, Nation of Penetration, Piss on China, 
I was DX before DX was cool. I come for sable, which I assume has to have a double meaning. China has testicular fortitude. LFO can suck it, so I guess he's not a fan of that Summer Girls song. And don't retire, HBK. And trust me, pal, as of the taping of this podcast, he literally just came out of retirement to wrestle at Crown Jewel a few weeks ago, so he hears you loud and clear. He hears you. So we officially begin with Vince McMahon walking to the ring. In case you need a reminder, last week The Undertaker declared that he would take over the WWF from Vince, and later on in the show, he gave some sort of envelope to Shane and had him deliver it to his father. And whatever was inside of it must have made Mr. McMahon rather upset, because last night on Sunday Night Heat, he declared that The Undertaker would face Corporate Kane tonight on Raw in an Inferno match. Yes, that's right. Tonight, someone gets set on fire. And so, when Vince grabs a microphone, he plays up that notion by telling the fans that they should leave right now if they get squeamish easily, because it could get very ugly tonight. He even happily utters the phrase, quote, Tonight, we're roasting human flesh. From there, Vince starts discussing WrestleMania 15, and he brings out the man who will be the special guest referee for the main event, the newest member of the corporation, Paul White. And you know what? Since this is the first ever promo that we get from Paul White in the WWF, I figure I might as well play it for you right here, because not only do we get some words from him, but some other familiar faces might show up as well. The clip is a bit long, around eight minutes, but I don't really care, because as you'll hear, some very important events are set in motion. the World Wrestling Federation. Thank you, sir. Because of this man, right here, I walked out of hell's fire, and I entered heaven's gate. Heaven's gate! Mr. McMahon, it's very good to do business with you. And because of this, I guarantee The World Wrestling Federation, as you know it, will never be the same again. It's money in the bank, and the dividends are already starting to pay off. In just a two-day span, two days, Stone Cold Steve Austin... Listen to these idiots. ...took a ride! through a steel cage and mankind experienced firsthand the big nasty and I single-handedly put the WWF title around the rocks waist and I did it for you and as far as Wrestlemania goes well Austin It's going to be as simple as one, two, three. (laughs) Do you smell what The Rock is cooking? Well, King of The Rock, a bit unscheduled here tonight. He's probably coming down to thank Paul White for helping win the title. The Rock will defend the title at WrestleMania 15 against Stone Cold. And King, you have to believe he's the odds-on favorite to win. Especially with the big nasty as the rep. All right, he's the most electrifying. 
You know, Vince, maybe The Rock's hearing isn't all that great. He heard a couple of boos when he came out. A couple? Like The Rock was saying, Vince, maybe his hearing isn't all that great. But Vince, The Rock, The Rock just wants to know, did this big jabroni say that he single-handedly put the WWF title around The Rock's waist? What? Well, he sort of said that, King. Wait a minute. You heard right. I said it. I'm just surprised you heard it if it got through that thick skull of yours. Oh, no. Vince, just a joke. who is this Rudy Pooh? Big time. Do you think that you can just walk your candy ass onto the rock show? Oh, no. That you can just walk your candy ass down Know Your Old Boulevard and actually have the audacity to speak to the great one that way? This is not good, Michael. The Rock says you should know your role and shut your mouth. Whoa! No, 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 no. Hey, Pebble, you better shut that big hole under your nose or I'm gonna close it with my fist. Oh, no! Uh, you know what? What we have here in the corporation, we like to have fun. We like to make jokes. Good. Fool good. around, things of that nature, and have a good time. Make jokes the Rock's ass! Uh-oh! Let the Rock tell you something. You overgrown 500-pound bag of monkey crap. No! This is serious, King. Trouble in McMahonville. Listen. You are three seconds away. And The Rock means three seconds away from The Rock laying a smackdown on your candy ass. No, not the smackdown. The Rock means it. He means it. Oh, oh no! 
What are you talking about? What better way to show Commissioner Michaels that I've got the guts, the pride, and the intertesticular fortitude? What? To step inside the ring at WrestleMania as the second guest referee than to referee my very first match tonight. Why not see Paul White versus The Rock? Yeah! Oh, no, no, wait a minute now. For the WWF Championship. Let's get it on! You stay out of this. You've been hit on the head one time too many. You stay out of my business. What do you say, champ? Just do what? I'll tell you what. You want to go one on one with the gray one? Oh, no. Well, The Rock says the only thing you will be doing is checking your ass into the SmackDown Hotel. You want The Rock tonight? You got The Rock tonight if you smell what The Rock is cooking. All right, so a couple things here. Number one, I'd say this was an okay debut promo from Paul White here. Some of his lines are a little bit lame, particularly when he tells Rock to, quote, shut that big hole under your nose. But don't worry, though, he'll get better. He'll eventually get better. Number two, it's pretty amusing that their first nickname for Paul White is apparently The Big Nasty. Not sure how long that one lasts, but I'm guessing it's probably not going to make it onto a t-shirt. Number three, it's very interesting that just one week after winning the title, The Rock is now coming across as a bit of a babyface standing up to a seven-foot-tall monster. I wonder if he'll maybe make a full face turn sometime in the near future. I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Number four, Michael Cole briefly mentioned it in that clip, but yes, last night on Sunday Night Heat, Mankind did indeed start a petition to have himself installed as the second guest referee for the main event at WrestleMania. And to further prove his case, he pulls out a black and white striped Mr. Socko. And as you heard in the clip, Mankind does indeed coax The Rock into putting his title on the line tonight against the big nasty Paul White with Foley himself acting as the guest referee. Speaking of Mankind, though, I have to say it makes me a bit sad to see him being so happy-go-lucky on this episode. One week ago, he was the reigning WWF champion, for Christ's sakes, and this week he's smiling and totally content to be the friggin' referee for the biggest match of the year, a match, by the way, that he should have possibly been in. I mean, shouldn't he be pissed off that Paul White screwed him instead of being his usual cheesy self? His demeanor during this promo just seems a bit off, is all I'm saying. But anyway, we now have another match announced for tonight. The Rock will put his WWF title on the line against Paul White. And remember, when Paul White was the giant in WCW, he won the World Heavyweight Championship in his very first match with the company, and tonight he can do the exact same thing in the WWF as well. Will it happen? 
I guess we'll find out later tonight. And after a commercial break, to further play up the dissension, we cut backstage where The Rock and Paul White are yelling at each other and being separated by the other members of the corporation. Just when you thought the addition of The Big Nasty would make the corporation even stronger, apparently it's starting to tear them apart. From there, we go back into the arena for our first match of the evening, Brood members Gangrel and Edge versus a tag team making their debut on Monday Night Raw. Yes, that's right. The public enemy have arrived in the WWF. In case you're not familiar with them, I'll give you a quick background. Public enemy, consisting of Flyboy Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge, was one of the more popular acts in the early days of ECW. Essentially, their gimmick is that they're goofy white guys who love hip-hop and quite literally wave their hands in the air as if they just don't care. But they were able to get over with the fans due to their hard-hitting style, combined with their frequent incorporation of tables into their matches. They captured the ECW tag team titles on four separate occasions, and, fun fact, across those four reigns, they held the title for a total of 369 days, the all-time record for ECW, which obviously will never be broken now. Interestingly, Public Enemy was actually offered a WWF contract in November of 1995, but they turned it down in favor of a WCW contract instead. They spent three years with World Championship Wrestling, winning the tag titles on one occasion in September of 96, but only holding them for a whopping eight days. They then briefly returned to ECW in January of 99, and they were supposed to have a match against the Dudley Boys on February 12th at the ECW event Crossing the Line 99, but they no-showed because they were negotiating with the WWF. And this episode of Raw, by the way, was taped on February 16th, so obviously those negotiations went well because, four days later, here they are on Raw, about to wrestle Edge and Gangrel. And speaking of the Brood, one quick note about them. This is the first match any Brood member has had on Raw in the past three weeks since they officially joined the Ministry of Darkness on February 1st. Interestingly, they are still being referred to as the Brood, so I guess you can consider them a sub-faction within a faction? That's some Inception-level shit right there. So as for the match... I think my background information on Public Enemy literally lasted longer than the match itself because it didn't even go for a minute and a half. The finish came when Rocco Rock went to the top rope while Johnny Grunge stood in the corner in front of him. Rocco then grabbed Grunge's hands and Grunge propelled him off the top turnbuckle for a flipping senton splash right onto Gangrel. Unfortunately, before Rocco could make the pin, Christian ran into the ring and clotheslined him, resulting in a disqualification. After the match, the Brood used their 3-on-2 advantage to work over Public Enemy until both of them rolled out to the floor. Rocco and Grunge then grabbed steel chairs, but before they could re-enter the ring, the lights went out. And yes, when they came back on, we saw that the Public Enemy had received a bloodbath. 
And without spoiling anything, I dare say that this may be the most memorable moment the Public Enemy ever has on Monday Night Raw. Oh, they'll have a very memorable moment on Sunday Night Heat about a month from now with other members of the Ministry of Darkness, but I suppose we'll touch on that when we get there. Needless to say, not a very lengthy run in the WWF for Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge. And after a commercial break, we get footage from during the break where the Brood is now somewhere outdoors, kneeling in front of The Undertaker and Paul Bearer with the other Ministry members behind them. Taker tells the Brood, quote, you must know what discipline and pain and suffering are. So the Acolytes, Midian, and Viscera then proceed to attack Gangrel, Edge, and Christian and beat the crap out of them. Now, I know that seems harsh, but remember, they did just lose a match to the public enemy, so that beating may actually be warranted. From there, we go back into the arena where your new WWF Intercontinental Champion, Val Venus, is headed to ringside so he can do commentary for our next match. In case you need a reminder, last week on Raw, Val made his first successful title defense, and then he dumped Ryan Shamrock immediately afterwards. It certainly seems like they're trying to give the big Valboski a bit of a more heelish persona, so I guess we'll see how that goes. As for the match he'll be commentating, it will be Ken Shamrock versus Billy Gunn, with the winner becoming the number one contender for Val's Intercontinental title. To which I say... Uh, didn't Val beat Shamrock at the pay-per-view and Billy on Raw the night after? Seems to me like neither of them should be the number one contender. They both had their chances, and they both blew it. Time to move on. And by the way, on the last episode of this podcast, I said that I didn't think they ever teased a relationship between Billy Gunn and Ryan Shamrock, but, uh, well, I was wrong. Because last night on Heat, they did indeed show Ryan sitting in Billy Gunn's lap and getting rather cozy. And while he's on commentary tonight, Val mentions that Billy is currently getting his sloppy seconds. So yes, apparently this is a thing. Gross. And Val actually has another good moment on commentary shortly after that. When Michael Cole accuses him of using Ryan Shamrock to win the title, he responds that he used her for a lot more than just winning the belt. Gotta admit, Val actually is pretty good on commentary here, being as sleazy as ever. Although at one point, he does reference Ken Shamrock tossing his own salad, which I assume would be impossible, but I'm not going to Google that to find out. So anyway, the Shamrock-Billy match was once again nothing special, but as you might expect, we didn't even get a conclusive finish. Why? Because when Billy ducked out of the ring, Val left his commentary position and rolled him back in, but... When Shamrock saw that, he exited the ring and started attacking Val. Billy Gunn then joined in on the fight, so, with all three guys going at it, referee Tim White just threw out the match entirely, although I'm pretty sure there was never actually even a bell. Eventually, a group of referees came down to ringside to separate them, and Ryan Shamrock also came out with them. Thankfully, though, her terrible acting was kept to a minimum this week, as Ken quickly grabbed her by the arm and dragged her off backstage. So the lesson to take away from this match is, apparently we have no number one contender for the Intercontinental title. Man, everything appears to be going Val Venus's way lately, it seems. And from there, we cut backstage, where Vince McMahon is speaking with your new WWF champion, The Rock. He tries to calm Rock down, but the People's Champ is still insisting that his match with Paul White will take place tonight. And strangely, even though they're in one of those locker rooms backstage, for the last 20 seconds of this segment, 
you can hear a car alarm going off in the background. I would have thought they'd be far enough removed from the parking lot so we wouldn't hear that, but apparently not. Very strange to hear a car alarm just randomly going off. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where Kevin Kelly is already in the ring along with your WWF Women's Champion, Sable. On the original broadcast back in 1999, they actually show a clip of Sable on live with Regis and Kathy Lee as she's walking to the ring, but they don't have the rights to show that on the network, so instead it looks like Sable basically gets the already-in-the-ring jobber entrance. And by the way, last week, the WWF title, Intercontinental title, European title, and Hardcore title all changed hands, which means that Sable is now your longest reigning champion in the company, having held her title since Survivor Series. Quite the gladiator she is. And flashing back to last week, Sable appeared to display a bit of a new demeanor when she was interviewed, so let's take a listen and see if that continues tonight as well. Sable, a lot of fans are taken aback at your recent air of confidence. Oh, Kevin, I think you misunderstood. They weren't taken back. They admired it. In fact, they admire everything Sable does. No doubt about it. Hey. Did you see me on Regis and Kathy Lee? I was to die for. Tell it! She was. Well, certainly, Sable, you are. Well, look who's here. Hi, honey. Can't we Come know on. her? Come on up here. She, she, she's been following Sable around for weeks. Again in the front row. Come she's on a in. stalker. She must have her own personal bail bondsman. She's an admirer of Sable's number of times she's come into the ring just to get close to Sable, and she's been thrown out. You know, maybe I was a little hard on you last week. So, um, what's your name? Tori? Tori. Well, Tori, let me ask you something. What is it about Sable that you find so fascinating? Let me get the waist. Sable, you are so beautiful, graceful, athletic, powerful. I mean, I, I adore everything about you. Yeah. Well, Tori, you are pathetic. And you need to get a life. I am sick and tired of all you wannabes trying to live your life through me. Wow. How sad. Now hit the road, skank. Oh. So, yes, after all these months, we finally learned that the Sable superfan's name is Tori. Although, granted, Adam and I kind of spoiled that last week on the podcast, but whatever. And unfortunately for Tori, being a superfan apparently doesn't endear her to Sable because she calls her a skank and tells her to get lost. However, once she does that, Luna Vachon comes out from backstage. Luna essentially tells Sable that she may be beautiful, but she doesn't have to treat people poorly the way she has been lately. Luna and Tori then turn around and start to exit the ring, 
So Sable nails both of them in the back with her women's title. And yes, as you would probably expect, Sable's belt shots looked incredibly weak. Sable then walks backstage as Michael Cole once again speculates as to what the deal is with the WWF Women's Champion. And I can help him out because I know what the deal is. She cuts what may be the most wooden promos in wrestling history. And suddenly, when you realize who she ends up marrying, it all kind of starts to make sense. They clearly had something to bond over. And after another commercial break, we cut backstage where Vince McMahon is now trying to talk Paul White into canceling tonight's match with The Rock. Big Nasty tells him that it's okay because when he wins the title, the belt will still be within the corporation, but that obviously fails to calm Vince down. All I know is that with the WWF title on the line tonight, this episode of Raw is shaping up to be a big show, that's for sure. And from there, we head back into the arena where D'Lo Brown comes to the ring and grabs a microphone. At St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Owen Hart took out Mark Henry by hitting him in the knee with a guitar, and then the following night on Raw, Deborah took out Ivory by hitting her with a guitar, so D'Lo is now all by himself. He then challenges the WWF Tag Team Champions Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart to come to the ring, and so they do, along with the aforementioned Deborah. Owen then gets into the ring with D'Lo and the bell rings, so it appears that we do indeed have us a match. At first I thought it was D'Lo versus Owen, but then Michael Cole informs us that it will actually be a handicap match, D'Lo versus Owen and Jarrett. To which I say, if D'Lo wins, will he become the tag team champions all by himself? I wouldn't necessarily be opposed. And it was early on in this match that I noticed something important. D'Lo is no longer wearing his chest protector. I'm actually not sure when he stopped wearing it. For all I know, it could be several weeks now and I just completely missed it. But yes, it appears that the torn pectoral muscle he received at the hands of Dan Severn last summer has finally healed. So good for him. Good for him. And speaking of ring attire, throughout this entire match, Owen Hart is wearing his ridiculously goofy-looking black and yellow shirt that says, Enough is enough on the front, and it's time for a change on the back with a clock standing in for the word time, and the number four standing in for the word four. Someone really needs to go back to the drawing board on that one. But anyway, the match lasts for about three and a half minutes, with Owen and Jarrett spending the majority of it working over D'Lo. However, toward the end, D'Lo took Jarrett down to the canvas, which resulted in Deborah getting up on the ring apron to distract referee Jimmy Corderas. And amusingly, we get a close-up on Dilo's face at this point, and we can clearly see him mouth the words, You fucking bitch. So that's nice. However, while Deborah is distracting Corderas, Terry Runnels and Jacqueline emerge from backstage. And while Dilo has his back turned, Jackie goes to the top rope and hits a dropkick right to the back of Dilo's head, followed by Owen hitting him with a spinning heel kick. The Blackheart then made the cover, Corderas turned back around, and that was enough to give the victory to your reigning WWF Tag Team Champions, Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart. And after the match concludes, PMS then heads backstage, but the tag champs are not yet done with D'Lo. Jarrett hits him with a front face buster, then he and Owen start stomping D'Lo and further working him over until referees run out from backstage to break things up. I was expecting Mark Henry to run down and make the save, but Michael Cole informed us that Sexual Chocolate is still injured from when Owen hit him in the knee with the guitar, so instead, D'Lo just ends up getting his ass kicked for almost the entire segment. 
So let that be a lesson to you folks. If you volunteer for a handicap match, it may, indeed, leave you handicapped. We then quickly cut backstage, where we see Mankind practicing counting, since he'll be the special guest referee for tonight's WWF title match. And in a funny moment, we can also see him spray-painting black stripes onto his white business shirt, so now he does indeed look the part. And that provides a fitting segue, because, after a commercial break, it is now time for our WWF Championship match, only halfway through the show, WWF Champion The Rock versus Paul White with special guest referee Mankind. Or is it time for that match? Because before we can begin, Vince McMahon heads down to the ring and grabs a microphone, where he then tells us that the match is off. But then The Rock makes his way to the ring and says he wants Vince to take a seat at the commentary table and watch what happens because, yes, he says the match will take place after all. And from there, Paul White then does indeed come out from backstage wearing a plain black t-shirt that has been cut from the armpit area down to the bottom of the shirt, basically the same way that the NWO does it. So, uh, cool, I guess? And in case you're curious, I'm going to play about 45 seconds of Paul White's first theme song for you here, but be warned that it is terrible. I think I made out the words slap my beef in there somewhere, but I'm not totally sure about that. Either way, yikes. I mean, they had several weeks to create a theme song for him before he came in, and that's what they came up with, folks. Jim Johnston, not always reliable, it seems. But anyway, our WWF title match is now about to begin, so let's take a listen to what happens next. Now, I would suggest you... As the referee says, ring the bell. Now watch this action. Ring the bell, damn it. Do what the referee says. Now then, let's sit back and watch this officiating. So I've got a hint that I think mankind is going to make. Oh, oh, oh. oh, wait a minute. Paul White just clobbered the referee. He certainly did. Can you imagine that? And look, The Rock is doing the same damn thing. Joke. The power of the corporation. You a fell force. For it. You fell for yeah, it. Yeah, you Everybody fell for it. 
So, yes, as you heard there, Rock started the match by pushing Paul White, and strangely, White then responded by putting his hand in Rock's face and shoving him across the ring. That seems a bit harsh considering what happens next, but I guess the big nasty had to make it look convincing. But yes, as soon as White shoves the Rock, he then kicks Mankind right in the face. From there, White and Rock start putting the boots to Foley, so yes, it appears that this was a setup all along. So, just so I have this clear, the plan was for Rock and Paul White to bicker with each other at the top of the show, which they knew would cause Mankind to come out from backstage and volunteer himself to be the special guest referee for a match? That is amazing foresight, I have to say, but clearly it worked out here. So Vince McMahon then leaves his commentary position and heads into the ring, where he embraces both Rock and White. They then hold up Mankind so Vince can punch him in the face, and all three corporation members head backstage. And after a commercial break, we get footage from during the break where the big boss man, Ken Shamrock, and Test celebrate with The Rock and Paul White when they come back through the curtain. So yes, it does indeed seem as though the corporation is stronger than ever. Quick fun fact here. To explain the reason as to why Stone Cold didn't show up during that segment, Michael Cole mentions that Austin was in New York doing both the Howard Stern show as well as live with Regis and Kathy Lee that very morning. Remember, though, this episode of Raw was taped on February 16th, and Austin was actually doing those shows live on the day the episode aired, the 22nd, so that isn't really an accurate explanation as to why he wasn't around. And if that confused you, well, you're not the only one. And in case you're wondering if Stone Cold said anything interesting while he was on Stern, he revealed that he was getting a divorce from his second wife, Jeannie Clark, who you may know better as Lady Blossom from her WCW days. And, amusingly at one point, Howard started talking about how the PR person who accompanied Stone Cold to the interview was hot, and it was revealed that her name was Marissa Mazzola. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because Marissa Mazzola is, indeed, the real-life wife of Shane McMahon. Does that kill kayfabe when Shane's wife is accompanying Stone Cold around the city for interviews? I'll let you be the judge of that. So, anyway, we then go back into the arena, where it is now time for our next match... Steve Blackman versus Darren Drozdov. In case you need a reminder, these two have had a bit of a feud going lately. Two weeks ago, Draws attacked Kevin Kelly backstage, and Blackman came to Kevin's rescue. And then last week, when Blackman was facing Bob Holly for the hardcore title, Draws showed up out of nowhere and hit Blackman with, uh, some giant piece of metal equipment. So now you're all caught up on this legendary feud. Now, on the last episode of this podcast, I mentioned how much it pissed me off that Billy Gunn was wearing his eyebrow ring during his match because, logically, your opponent should just want to rip that shit right out. Well, in an even worse example of that concept, I need to point out the fact that Draws is wrestling this match while wearing a nipple ring. Good lord. And honestly, even in a non-kayfabe sense, I feel like there's a very real possibility that that thing could get ripped out just by mistake. I mean, Jesus Christ, if you take one chop to the chest, you could conceivably end up minus one areola. And in fact, I don't even like thinking about that potentially happening, so let's just move on. Now, I anticipate that the heat surrounding the ring during tonight's Inferno match will be overwhelming, but as for this match, it's the complete opposite because there is absolutely zero heat for it. The crowd just doesn't give two shits about either guy, and honestly, I can't really blame them. 
Mercifully, though, the match ended after a little more than three minutes when Blackman reversed an Irish whip and nailed draws with a bicycle kick out of nowhere, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner, Steve Blackman. However, as soon as the match concluded, Draws grabbed one of Blackman's glow-in-the-dark Eskrima sticks and nailed him in the back with it. He then choked Blackman with the stick until several officials ran to the ring and got him to break it up, but apparently, to the joy of absolutely no one, this feud must continue. Yay! We then quickly cut backstage, where we can see Vince McMahon talking to Corporate Kane. Vince tells Kane to promise him that he will make The Undertaker burn tonight, and Kane does indeed nod his head yes. And then, after a commercial break, we get the opposing viewpoint, as we see The Undertaker standing next to... a wall somewhere. And instead of looking into the camera, he's gazing off to the side, which kinda makes it look like he's reading this promo from somewhere, but obviously that's just speculation on my part. But even so, let's take a listen to what The Undertaker has to say. The battle has been joined. My agents of darkness are poised to unleash my reign of terror on the World Wrestling Federation. All in the name of my master, McMahon. You think you have problems with Austin. Oh, but your problems... They've just begun. In the audacity, do you actually think you can eliminate me with an inferno match? Don't you realize there's some flames that can't be extinguished, and the Lord of Darkness is one of them? Soon, McMahon, you will realize that I am your worst nightmare. And by the way, tonight, I intend on showing you just how serious I am with my threat. Tonight, if you like, you could even call it a surprise. McMahon, the World Wrestling Federation, will be mine. So there you have it. The Undertaker is still claiming that he is serving a greater master, and tonight he has a surprise in store for Vince McMahon. What will it be? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned, now won't you? And from there, we head back into the arena for our next match, WWF Intercontinental Champion Val Venus versus Goldust in a non-title match. Remember back in October when these guys had a deeply personal feud over Terry, which resulted in Dustin Reynolds transforming from a preacher back into his old Gold Dust character? Well, now they're having an unannounced non-title match on Raw. All right then. So yes, this was an okay match, getting about four minutes of ring time. The finish came when Val and Gold Dust were brawling outside of the ring, but then a familiar face showed up. Attack Val Venus! Look at this idiot! Hit him! 
So yes, as you heard there, when Val Venus rolled Goldust back into the ring, the blue meanie jumped Val from behind and nailed him with a really nice-looking DDT on the arena floor behind referee Jimmy Corderas' back. Meanie then rolled Val back into the ring, where all Goldust had to do was pin him, and so he did, and that was enough to give Goldust the non-title victory. Now at this point, you're probably saying, why the hell is the blue meanie helping Goldust after they just had a month-long feud that culminated at St. Valentine's Day Massacre? Also, why is your new Intercontinental Champion Val Venus, a guy who's currently feuding with Ken Shamrock and Billy Gunn, losing a match to friggin' Goldust, who is pretty goddamn low in the pecking order right now? And the answer to those questions is... Vince Russo. I don't know what else to tell you, folks. The man loves to muddy the waters. So after another commercial break, it is now time for our next match, and it is for the WWF Hardcore Championship champion hardcore holly and yes they are officially calling him that now versus bart gun the new midnight express powers explode if you recall last week on raw holly cut a promo where he said the wwf had given him nothing but lousy gimmicks and weak tag team partners and wouldn't you know it his former tag team partner bart gun just so happened to be in the arena that night for the first time in six months so that sets up tonight's match Bart Gunn, by the way, is wearing blue jeans to the ring, so clearly you're looking at a big money player. And once again, only a few seconds into the match, the brawl goes to the outside, where Holly smashes a glass pitcher of what Michael Cole says is Kool-Aid into Bart's face, and then, yes, Holly nails Bart with an unprotected chair shot to the skull. Eight episodes of Raw so far this year, and I'm pretty sure all eight of them have featured at least one vicious chair shot to the head. Keep that streak alive, folks. Not to be outdone, Bart then nails Holly with a glass mug, followed by hitting him in the head with the ring bell, and because this is a pre-taped episode, of course they go back and edit in a dinging sound effect. Because hey, why wouldn't you? They continued brawling around the ringside area, and eventually both men busted out that classic hardcore match standby the fire extinguisher. Although in this case, Jerry Lawler makes the very valid point that they shouldn't be wasting the foam inside of it because they're probably going to need it for the Inferno match later on. Pretty funny line, but also quite true. So both men then brawl to the top of the stage where Bart pulls back the black curtain to reveal a bunch of random food lying around. Bart then smashes a watermelon on Holly's head, followed by Holly smashing a crate of bananas over Bart's head. And then, to cap it off, Bart hits Holly in the head with a sack of flour, causing it to fly all over the place. Jerry Lawler even sells the flour by coughing, which is incredibly stupid because, I repeat, Bart and Holly are at the top of the stage, and Lawler is still at the commentary table. No clue why he felt the need to add that little touch there. But anyway, with Bart in control, he randomly gets jumped from behind by... Some random guy wearing a red karate outfit and what looks like a monkey mask. Okay. The mystery man then grabs Bart and throws him off the stage through a table below, which Cole says is a 15-foot drop, but clearly that's not even close to being true. The mystery man then walks off, Holly climbs down and pins Bart, and referee Mike Kyoto counts the one, 
the two, and the three. Your winner and still WWF Hardcore Champion, Hardcore Holly. Well, Bartgon may not have won the match, but it was a whole lot of fun, and it certainly seems like they're setting him up for a feud with whoever that mystery man was. I certainly see big things ahead for Bartgon in the coming weeks and months. So, you probably know what I'm about to say now, don't you? Yes, that's right. This was Bart Gunn's last ever match on Monday Night Raw. Spoiler alert, he does still have one more very memorable pay-per-view match coming up, but as for Raw, I'm afraid that this is the end of the line for the slugging Southpaw. The guy wins the Brawl for All, a tournament that made him look like the biggest badass on the entire roster, and you keep him off TV for six months. Then you bring him back for one match, and hey, well, that's, that's all we have for him. I really don't understand this, folks. I really don't. I get that the guy doesn't have the most personality, but Jesus Christ, we just saw Steve Blackman and friggin' Draws getting airtime earlier tonight. And shit, Blackman ends up lasting five years in the company. You mean to tell me that no one in creative had any idea what to do with a guy who, much like Ken Shamrock, now had the pedigree of being a legitimate badass? Bullshit. Again, I hate to say that they killed his push because the tournament was meant to make Dr. Death Steve Williams look like a star, but I do think that's a fair bet. Now, normally, I would induct Bart Gunn into Wrestler Heaven at this point, but as I said, he's been off television for the past six months, so he's probably not worth the time to queue up the clip. Also, we will still be seeing him on Raw in other capacities a few more times, and he'll be at WrestleMania as well, so we can still enjoy him for a few more weeks. But just know this, Bart Gunn. You have at least one fan on this podcast, because you fucking deserved better. I stand by it. So after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, D-Generation X member X-Pac, accompanied by Triple H, versus Corporation member China, accompanied by your new WWF European champion, Shane McMahon. If you recall last week on Raw, Shane defeated X-Pac in a tag team match with the European title on the line, and he pinned Pac after hitting him in the face with the belt behind the referee's back. And then last night on Sunday Night Heat, X-Pac challenged Shane to a rematch at WrestleMania, but China said it wouldn't be that easy. X-Pac would first need to defeat her on Raw tonight in order to earn his European title rematch, so that's where we are now. And once again, it appears as though they don't trust China to do very much in the ring, because the match only ends up lasting a little more than a minute. China got the early advantage by hitting X-Pac with a low blow behind referee Tim White's back, and then she hit him with a forearm, knocking him down into the corner in perfect position for a Bronco Buster. However, when China went for her own version of the move, X-Pac moved out of the way. Pac then rolled to the floor and chased Shane McMahon around the ringside area, so Tim White followed him out there as well. Unfortunately for China, while that was going on, Triple H snuck into the ring and nailed China with a pedigree. X-Pac then rolled back in, Tim White made the count, and that was enough to give the victory to X-Pac. So yes, it appears that we now have our second officially announced match for WrestleMania 15. WWF European Champion Shane McMahon will defend his title against X-Pac. How will that match turn out? Spoiler alert, it'll certainly have some interesting twists and turns. Let's just, let's just say that. And after one final commercial break, we now go back into the arena where Vince McMahon is heading to the ring and he's holding an envelope. As mentioned earlier, the Ministry of Darkness briefly abducted Shane McMahon last week, and The Undertaker gave Shane that envelope to present to his father, so it appears that Vince 
now is holding on to whatever the contents of that envelope are. So let's take a listen to what Vince has to say before we kick into the Inferno match. And King, he's carrying that envelope delivered to Mr. McMahon from The Undertaker. Again, I warned you, at the top of all those of you who have a squeamish stomach, get up and leave right now. If you don't like the smell of flesh burning, get up and leave. Because tonight, The Undertaker, you're going to get what you deserve. Undertaker, you dare threaten me in that manner? What goes around comes around. You burned your parents to death. Undertaker, you burned your home down and you charred your brother in the process. And for that, and for these threats, Undertaker, nobody goes here outside the WWF arena. Nobody does this to Vince McMahon. And because of that, Undertaker, the Inferno match, my God, you're going to burn in hell. So with that in mind, allow me to introduce to you the corporation's personal instrument of destruction, here is Kane. So from there, Kane does indeed come to the ring, with Vince then heading over to the commentary table for the second time tonight. And shortly after that, The Undertaker does indeed emerge from backstage, so it is now time for the Inferno match. You may recall that Kane and The Undertaker also faced each other in the first ever Inferno match last April at the Unforgiven pay-per-view, and The Undertaker won that match by setting Kane's arm on fire. And on that note, in case you need a reminder of the rules of an Inferno match, they are, indeed, just as simple as that. One man wins when he sets the other man on fire. And just like last April, there is a square, uh contraption surrounding the ring which has flames shooting out of it at all times. And amusingly, anytime someone hits a big move, for example when Kane nails Undertaker with a power slam, the flames shoot even higher into the air. You could certainly say that's a bit cheesy and doesn't really make any sense, but I actually think it looks pretty awesome. And a quick note on The Undertaker here as well, this is the first time we've seen him in a match since December's Rock Bottom pay-per-view when he lost the Buried Alive match to Stone Cold Steve Austin, and this is Taker's first match on Raw since December 7th, when he teamed with The Rock to face Austin and Mankind. But of course, you probably remember the post-match festivities from that show a little bit better, where Taker then, quote-unquote, crucified Stone Cold. Good times. So early on in the match, Michael Cole asks Vince McMahon about the contents of that envelope, but the chairman refuses to discuss it. And then a little while later, Cole references the fact that The Undertaker has stated that he answers to a greater power, to which Vince says, quote, yeah, well, let me tell you, here tonight on Raw, he's answering to me, pal. That's who he's answering to. Uh-huh. And just a few minutes later, with Taker and Kane still going at it in the ring, Paul Bearer walks over to the commentary table where Vince is sitting, and he hands him a black box with a black bow on it. Bearer says it's a special delivery, but Vince refuses to open it, so of course I am now obliged to play the classic Brad Pitt clip here. However, Vince actually does end up opening the box after some prodding from Jerry Lawler, and we see what's inside is... a teddy bear. That seems innocent enough, 
But when Vince realizes what it is, he looks puzzled. He grabs the bear, stands up from the commentary position, and starts walking toward Paul Bearer, who is now standing at the top of the ramp. Vince appears to be on the verge of tears, asking Bearer why he's doing this, but we as the viewers obviously have no idea what's going on. Meanwhile, back in the match, Kane has now thrown The Undertaker over the top rope, and, fortunately for Taker, he ends up being launched over the flames before he hits the floor. Kane then climbs to the top turnbuckle and leaps toward Taker, but he moves out of the way, causing Kane to crash into the announce table. However, Kane manages to briefly gain control by reversing an Irish whip, which sends Taker back first into the steel stairs. From there, Kane charges toward Taker and tries to hit him with a big boot, but the Undertaker grabs his foot and puts it right into the flames. Once again, Kane is on fire, which means the Undertaker has won the match. Meanwhile, with all this going on, Vince still hasn't even realized that Kane has lost because he's so traumatized by the sight of the teddy bear. Taker then walks around the ring over to where Vince is standing, and he grabs the bear out of Vince's hands. He puts it into the flames, catching the bear on fire, and he throws it up the ramp. And from there, we go off the air with Vince on his stomach, crawling toward the burning bear, yelling, No! What does it all mean? Well, I guess you'll just have to stay tuned. Let's just say that this eventually leads to the introduction of a brand new on-camera character, and, well, that person is still making his or her presence felt today. I'll just leave it at that. But anyway, we're not done just yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Well, actually, before we get into the ratings, there is a pay-per-view to cover because WCW's Super Brawl 9 aired on Sunday night. As Adam and I discussed on the last episode, Super Brawl's main event was Hulk Hogan defending his WCW World Heavyweight Championship against Ric Flair, which is probably one of the strongest possible matches WCW could put on at this point. Unfortunately, the match kind of sucked. And yes, that's right, folks, not even Ric Flair could drag Hulk Hogan to a good match at this point. After a 13-minute slog, Flair put Hogan into the figure four while the referee was knocked out, and from there, a masked man wearing a leather jacket came to the ring and zapped Flair with a cattle prod, and he then put Hogan on top of the Nature Boy. Referee Charles Robinson recovered and made the count, and that was enough to score the three count for the Hulkster. And after the match was over, it was revealed who the mystery man was. David friggin' Flair. Yes, that's right. The evil Tory Wilson seduced him into betraying his own father and joining the NWO. Pretty ridiculous, but then again, it is 1999 Tory Wilson, so I suppose that actually is pretty plausible. And in the undercard, I know this will shock you, but the NWO won even more matches as Scott Hall defeated Roddy Piper to win the U.S. title and Scott Steiner retained his television championship against Diamond Dallas Page. So for those scoring at home, yes, the NWO now possesses WCW's top three singles titles. And who could possibly ever get tired of that? But perhaps the most important development from the undercard came from a tag match 
as the Outsiders faced Conan and Rey Mysterio with an interesting stipulation. If Conan and Rey won the match, Miss Elizabeth would have to shave her head, but if the Outsiders won, Rey Mysterio would need to remove his mask for the first time in his career. And, of course, the Outsiders won. Now, if you will, quickly flash back to Halloween Havoc 1997 with me, Rey Mysterio versus Eddie Guerrero, one of the greatest matches in WCW history. The stipulation of that match was, if Rey lost, he would be forced to unmask, which Eric Bischoff was very much in favor of. Rey, on the other hand, vehemently lobbied against losing his mask, so much so that they had to change the finish of the match before the pay-per-view so that Rey would go over instead. Allegedly, one of Bischoff's conditions for changing the finish was that Ray would need to lose the mask at some point in the future. Well, now let's flash back to Super Brawl 9, and yes, Bischoff finally gets what he wants, because it is indeed time for Ray Mysterio to unmask. This is a, quite a moment in, in, in the history of pro wrestling, especially in the... Take it off. Yeah, look at that. Conan. Take it all off. Who was like a big brother to Rey Mysterio Jr. is going to be the one to loosen up the laces. Helps him out. And now look, Rey, Rey Jr., a man of his word, he's going to take the mask off. Look what's inside of him. He hates it. This is his life. The point is, now what... Let's leave it to Beaver. Our first look at the face of the man behind the mask, Ray Mysterio Jr. Put it back on, he's telling him. Oh, baloney. He's not a... He's a handsome young man there. What are you talking about? That was his life right in front of him you saw there. The question is, at this point, how will this affect the career of Ray Mysterio Jr. from this point forward? That's a good point. So, far be it for me to denigrate the good name of Bobby the Brain Heenan, but would it have killed him to put this over as a bigger moment as opposed to an excuse to make jokes about Ray's looks? I feel like he probably should have known better given the occasion. But anyway, as you heard at the end there, Mike Tanay asked the question, how will this affect the career of Ray Mysterio from this point forward? Answer, his WCW career is pretty much fucking dead. Why? Because when he removes his mask... He looks like a goddamn 12-year-old boy. Ironically, one of the reasons why Bischoff allegedly wanted Ray to lose his mask was because he thought it would make him more marketable, which is hilarious when you look at how many Mysterio masks they end up selling when he eventually makes his way over to the WWE. And of course, he still goes by the name Ray Mysterio in WCW, even though that name in Spanish literally translates to Mystery King, and uh, the mystery is officially gone, folks. Instead of looking like a badass, he now looks like he should be studying for his upcoming algebra quiz. The mask makes all the difference, folks. And by the way, after he loses the mask, Kevin Nash mockingly tells him to put it back on, and then, once Ray leaves the ring, Nash actually tries putting the mask on his own head, which of course does not fit. You see, it's funny, because he's the booker, and he just ruined a man's career. It's hilarious. It's very funny stuff. So fuck that pay-per-view, and let's move on to Nitro. Last week, Nitro got completely blown out of the water in the ratings, 5.9 to 3.9, the largest margin by which the WWF had ever won. 
This week, Nitro was live, but up against a pre-taped episode of Raw, and they did actually manage to draw some interest after Super Brawl, because the ratings shot all the way up from a 3.9 to a 4.73. For sure, that is a massive increase, so they definitely gained some momentum there. However, the pre-taped Raw still put up a 5.55, so yes, the WWF wins once again. No surprise there at this point. But of course, for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching over on the post-Super Brawl episode of Nitro. Jerry Flynn defeated Mike Enos. Bam Bam Bigelow defeated Van Hammer. Booker T defeated Bret Hart in a great match that went for almost 18 minutes. And as a fun footnote, they did the SummerSlam 1992 finish where Bret went for the sunset flip but Booker hooked both of the hitman's legs and leaned forward, so they actually really popped me with that finish there. Disco Inferno defeated Kaz Hayashi, who is now wearing Glacier's ring attire because he bought it from him for some reason. Hugh Morris defeated Chris Jericho. The newly unmasked Rey Mysterio defeated Kevin Nash. More on that in just a moment. Scott Norton defeated Ernest the Cat Miller. And Goldberg defeated Scott Steiner via disqualification. So from an in-ring perspective, it was actually a pretty strong night for WCW. Unfortunately, they had to fuck things up all over again by screwing the fans out of something that they promised to them. In tonight's case, they advertised all night long that Ric Flair was going to show up and confront David Flair after his son turned his back on him the previous night. So at the very end of the broadcast, we see the Nature Boys limousine pull up to the arena, and then we get quote-unquote static which kicks into a pre-taped six-minute NWO parody where Hogan is pretending to be Flair, Hall is pretending to be Piper, Nash is pretending to be Arn Anderson, and Disco Inferno is pretending to be Mean Gene Okerlund. So just to recap, they spend the whole three hours hyping up the fact that Ric Flair will be coming to the arena, and then Flair never even makes an appearance on camera. The only thing we see is his limo. I mean... It just kind of boggles the mind at this point that they continue to think that fucking over the fans is a good idea. At this point, I think you can only say, vintage WCW. And of course, yet again, the NWO makes Flair look like a bitch after leaving him for dead in a field last week, getting his son to turn on him last night, and now completely cutting him off at the end of the show. Can't wait to see what happens to him next week. Take my money, please. I love me some NWO. And before we wrap up with Nitro, I must now read an excerpt from the book The Death of WCW by Brian Alvarez and R.D. Reynolds, which covers the events from this past week. In fact, they actually have a little bit more information on the whole Nash-Mysterio angle. Quote, Around this time, Nash realized just how much heat he was getting backstage and attempted to do something about it. The February 22nd Nitro saw him put over Rey Mysterio. The idea was twofold. First, it was a reward for Mysterio, as he'd agreed to lose his mask and become marketable, and second, it was a way for Nash to show the crew that he was willing to do a job for anyone, even someone almost literally half his size. Nash went for a powerbomb, but Ray punched him repeatedly in the head, and Nash fell onto his back for a fluke pin. In reality, it meant nothing, but Nash used it for pretty much the rest of his career to point out what a great company guy he was. Yeah, and you know, certainly when I think of Kevin Nash, I always think of a guy who puts the company first over his own best interests. Yeah, for certain. But anyway, let's move on to the Raw synopsis. So once again, Raw was a bit of a mixed bag this week. The actual wrestling was pretty mediocre, and even the Inferno match itself was a bit of a slog. 
And clearly they weren't expecting much from the match since so much of the focus was on Vince McMahon and the teddy bear angle while the match was going on. Honestly, the most enjoyable match of the night was probably the hardcore match because, hey, what's more fun than two guys beating the shit out of each other with fruit? But let's get back to Vince McMahon for just a second here. The first hour of Raw ends with him orchestrating an evil scheme for The Rock and Paul White to beat up Mankind, but then when the show ends, he's on the verge of tears as The Undertaker messes with his head. So, uh, are we supposed to hate the guy or feel sympathy for him? I realize it's the Attitude Era and there are shades of gray, but it makes for some real mixed emotions throughout the course of this show. And of course, as you probably noticed, once again, no Stone Cold Steve Austin on this show. That's particularly interesting considering the fact that just four days after this episode airs, he has his first appearance as Detective Jake Cage on the television show Nash Bridges. You'd think they'd want to have him on Raw to promote that, but then again, they did advertise his appearances on Howard Stern and Regis and Kathy Lee, where he was promoting the show, so I guess it evens out. All in all, I definitely say this episode of Raw gets a thumbs in the middle, mostly trending downward. The good news is that we definitely have some fun moments coming up on the road to WrestleMania, so hopefully we'll be getting to those over the next few weeks. And finally, before we wrap up, let's hit on a few points from this week's issue of the Wrestling Observer. Meltzer reports that morale in WCW is currently at an all-time low, and there's been a lot of infighting between Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, and Eric Bischoff. The guy receiving the majority of the heat right now, as mentioned in that Death of WCW excerpt, is indeed Kevin Nash, with many backstage feeling he's only interested in protecting his friends and holding down everybody else. But hey, he lost Queen to Mysterio, so that tells me he'll be doing a lot more jobs in the future, right? Right? Ugh. And speaking of Nash and Bischoff, they had a brilliant idea this past week for Goldberg, who appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno on Friday, February 19th. And that idea was to have Goldberg issue a public challenge to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Meltzer reports that Goldberg had no desire to do this, so when he actually goes on the show and calls out Stone Cold, he's actually pretty passionless about the whole thing. And of course, on the WWF's end, they don't even bother to dignify it with a response, because really, why would they? I think I've played the clip on a past episode of this podcast, but screw it, I'll play it at the end of this show as well, so you can hear Goldberg's very passionless challenge. In even less fun WCW news, during a Thunder match against Psychosis this week, Hector Garza ripped his scrotum. Sadly, I was compelled to go back and watch how this occurred, and it clearly happens toward the end of the match when Garza gets crotched on the top turnbuckle. I'm not sure what's worse, that injury or the one where Johnny the Bull tears his urethra about a year from now, but uh, let's, uh, let's just move on. Earl Hebner did a newspaper interview this past week where he claimed that WCW offered him and his brother Dave a deal to jump ship where they would then work a Montreal screwjob type angle against Bret Hart. Apparently, they turned it down, which is surprising because, knowing how much money WCW was wasting at this point, I would just assume that Bischoff would offer them both six-figure deals. And in case you think I'm joking, try to take a guess at how much money Stevie Ray makes in WCW in 1999. Seriously, take a second. Think about it. Have you made your guess? Well, the answer is $640,000 in 1999 money for Stevie friggin' Ray. Try not to have an aneurysm thinking about that one. And finally, on the previous episode of this podcast, Adam from Nitromania mentioned how badly Shane McMahon sucks on commentary during Sunday Night Heat. Well, 
Meltzer reports that the WWF is currently considering having Jim Cornette replace him on commentary, but, and I know this will shock you, Cornette is currently in the political doghouse with Vince Russo and Kevin Dunn. I know, I know. I also can't believe old Corny would somehow piss someone off. Very surprising, but I guess we'll see how it plays out. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugebex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with that aforementioned clip of Goldberg half-heartedly challenging Stone Cold Steve Austin to a match on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno as Kevin Costner and Callista Flockhart are sitting beside him, probably wondering what the hell is going on. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. I want to ask you something. Now, this Steve Austin guy... Who's that? I keep hearing... Goldberg's a wimp, and Goldberg's scared of him, and, uh, you know, I know you're your friend. I, I, I don't want to bring this I up. I guess this gives me an opportunity to uh, throw a challenge out there. You going to throw a challenge right here tonight? Yeah, you know, there have been... There have been... Uh... Back me up on this, Kevin. <laughs> I've been yeah. in high school before. You go... <laughs> there you go. Um... Ever since I started, everybody always called me a ripoff of Steve Austin. Well, you guys know, and I know, there's only one Goldberg. That's right. And I don't know what he's thinking, or if he's, or if he's even thinking. But uh, <laughs> I'll throw a hundred grand of my money, Austin, anytime, any place. We can even do it in the back alley of the NBC. Right studio. here, at NBC. We'll, we'll set it up right here. At the Calista becomes the ring girl. I think it's a hell of a deal. So you, it's a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand, you gotta do the a hundred grand, Austin, you get me right here on the Tonight Show. Goldberg taking you down for one hundred grand. Did I do it right? I didn't go to that action. There you go, there you go. Goldberg. Good job, buddy. Be right back right after this.